When I first started um, working on the BizLab, so the BizLab essentially was founded as a company to help startups align their growth story and their financial projections right. when they are at the stage of wanting to seek out investors. Mm. And typically, we are looking at the seed stage, pre-seed stage, mm. uh, where they have not had much experience seeking funding. Mm. Uh, so naturally, when we talk about investability at that time, um, when I first started the company, we thought that investability simply means um, the ability to get people to put money on you. Right. right? Uh, is that not what it means? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my initial understanding. But as I came into contact with a lot more startups, right? Um, actually, I realized the notion of investability needs to be expanded. Mm. And I'll explain why it's important for that concept to be expanded. You're listening to Sales in Asia, your gateway to sales practices in Asia. And I'm your host, Benny Tan. What is investability? Is it just about funding? What makes startups investable and why should founders care? Dr. Yong Xin Ning is a startup mentor and coach, faculty and professor with Singapore Management University and Singapore Institute of Technology, and have spent more than 15 years as a change management consultant with Accenture. As the founder of BizLab, she prepares early startups to be more investable by looking beyond the numbers. In this episode, she shares a powerful framework for founders to decipher their value, lessons from her own journey, and other sound bites for founders and would-be founders. So let's jump right in. A very good afternoon, uh, Dr. Yong. It is uh, such a pleasure to have you uh, with us as a guest on the Sales in Asia podcast. Thank you. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, but mm. uh, for the benefit of our uh, listeners, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, Benny, thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast show. Um, it's really, really a privilege to be able to share um, on your show. So if I could introduce myself um, using three shapes, okay. square, circle, triangle. That sounds very, very interesting already. Yes, I would love to hear that. Yes. So if you have watched the Squid Game, uh, right. you remember the name card? <laughs> yes, uh, indeed. Indeed. Yes, I have in, indeed uh, remember the name card. Yes. Yeah. So um, listeners listening to your podcast, don't worry, I'm not extending an invitation into um, some crazy place. Uh, but I just thought that it's an interesting way to introduce uh, myself and my journey. Uh, so if I started with the square, um, square stands for a very routine, normal, boring corporate career. Right. So I graduated uh, in accountancy from Nanyang Technological University more than two decades ago. Right. And mm. uh, my first job was in Arthur Anderson, so I was a tax accountant because mm. I thought I wasn't cut out to be audit or accounting, so I chose tax, not that I know very much about it. Mm. So I studied, uh, I did that for three years, and I thought that that was not something that um, I wanted to pursue for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I wanted to join um, this company called Anderson Consulting then, uh, but it, it's now called Accenture. Right. So when mm. I went for an interview, they said, um, I think you need to get a master degree to you know, join our company as a change management consultant. I'm like, mm, okay, wow. uh, let's do it. 
So I left Arthur Anderson and I pursued a master's degree in Australia, University of New South Wales. Mm. And I came back and I joined Accenture for 15 years. And um, I was working on change management for mm. very large scale projects. Mm. So that's then the conclusion of my square after um, about 18, 19 years of corporate experience. Right. It, then I move on to the circle. So circle stands for, um, in a sense, my head, right? Because after I left Accenture, I thought, mm, okay, what should I do? I didn't want to do any corporate role. So I decided to inflict permanent head damage on myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they call a PhD. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I thought, mm, okay, uh, let me pursue a PhD because I I think I like mental stimulation. I, I like to do research. I like to think or muse a lot. Mm. Um, so I spent about three years, uh, two years plus three years uh, in SMU and I did uh, my PhD mm. and my area of research was this in this very crazy topic called, um, I wanted to know why part-time knowledge workers were working over time even though they were paid part-time. Right. So you know those um, moms that are working part-time every time after their kids sleep, right? they would just be answering emails and doing stuff. And sometimes on their off days, they would go back to office for meetings. Mm -hmm. So I studied that anomaly and I came up with a model that explained why that's so. So um, after I left the circle, I went uh, and continued my journey as a triangle. Okay. So um, triangle has got kind of three kind of apex, three um, points, right? right? So actually these three points represent the kind of focus areas that I'm pursuing now at this stage of my career. So um, after I left the PhD, after I finished, I was focusing, I started my first company mm. called Change Voyage, which right, is a change right. management consulting company. Mm. Um, and then later on, I started the Biz Lab, which is actually focused on um, early stage startups. And we'll talk about that a bit later. Mm. So that's kind of like one corner of the triangle. Right. The other corner is that I teach a lot and that's where I also met you that's in right. SMU. Mm. So I uh, have various appointments in um, a few universities. So mm. SMU, SIT, as well as, well as NUS. Mm. And I kind of teach um, entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as change management. Right. Okay, so these are two uh, and these are like my staple diet. Okay. But the thing that is right on top actually is my family. Mm. So to me, that is the most important. Um, and the way that I have structured my life and my interests, how they synergistically kind of come together mm. is with my family kind of at the apex of this entire arrangement. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so it looks like you have a slightly different way of uh, achieving your what they call ikigai. Yeah. <laughs> except except yeah. that your shape is actually in that of uh, from a box to a circle to a triangle. Yeah. You know, that's a, such an such an interesting uh, introduction, and thank you very much for that. And as you've mentioned, uh, we met uh, during COVID. You know, when everybody was uh, working from home, and I decided, you know. I'm just going to take a course and learn something from experts about startups as I was kind of like starting my, my own business then. And uh, what impressed me was actually really your knowledge about uh, not only the industry, but also the practices, best practices that you brought in. And I think it was actually quite evident, uh, particularly from your experience in change management. 
So, so you had a very, very, you've been having a very interesting journey, right? So you started from accounting, right? Mm. It's kind of like square box thingy, right? And then into organize, you know, you got, you achieve, you uh, got your master's in organization and commerce and eventually a PhD and uh, you are a founder of uh, two businesses. And at some point, you know, after doing work uh, as a managing consultant for about 15 or, you know, you know plus years, um, you, you know, you you became an entrepreneur yourself, right? So you've shared with us that square, the circle, the triangle. Uh, what has been some of the best highlights for you in, let's say, your twenty plus uh, years in in your career? Okay, I I think maybe to do justice to whatever I'm going to share, mm. uh, I wouldn't term it as highlight when I'm going through it. But when I look back, right. I, I think it's a, it's a great thing that happened to mm. me. Um, so I spent 15 years in Accenture. And mm. to me, I think that is the best thing that could have happened to me from a career standpoint. Even though, right. um, you know, being a consultant is really quite a tough job. Mm. Uh, because you need to be very versatile, adaptive and long hours and very high pressure. Mm. Uh, why I say it's the best thing that has happened to me in terms of my career is that because we are always thrown into situations that we, are, we don't always have the perfect answer for, so we have actually worked out kind of like a system to learn things very quickly mm. um, and in any situations. So I think uh, that type of skill, life skill that we picked up in the formative years, right, is actually very helpful for me as I go through my, you know, whether studying for PhD or um, coming out to be an entrepreneur. Okay, that's great. You know, so I've interviewed a number of uh, of guests on my show, and uh, it's always so interesting that all of them actually started uh, with doing something that is totally unrelated to what they're doing now. In fact, more than a few of them started as engineers and now they run uh, their heads of businesses and so on, right? And, uh, you know, one of my first guests was actually a... uh, uh, He is a head of HR for a large logistics company and he... Again, you know, he didn't really quite start off with HR. He actually started off with logistics. So it's always interesting to see that uh, that people are always uh, evolving, right? Uh, not only in their personal development, also in their career. Now, the the theme that we you know want to talk about today, you know, in your area of specialty, is around uh, what you're doing today, which is what founders should know about investability so when we first started mooted the idea about uh, about this you know you shared with me that uh, you were consulting and uh, engaging with uh, startup founders right uh, and I used the word with their funding and you said no it's not funding it's investability so we want to talk more about that you know here and you know and learn more about uh, what what that means so could you tell me what investability means and okay. yeah, so what does it mean to, to you and why should, uh, why should our listeners, uh, whether or not their founders, uh, care about it? Okay, so before I answer that question directly, mm. um, I want to kind of uh, take a step back and talk about my own personal evolution of um, understanding what investability means. Okay. 
So when I first started um, working on the BizLab, so the BizLab essentially was founded as a company to help startups align their growth story and their financial projections right. when they are at the stage of wanting to seek out investors. Mm. And typically, we are looking at the seed stage, pre-seed stage, mm. uh, where they have not had much experience seeking funding. Mm. Uh, so naturally, when we talk about investability at that time, um, when I first started the company, we thought that investability simply means um, the ability to get people to put money on you. Right. right? Uh, is that not what it means? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my initial understanding. But as I came into contact with a lot more startups, right? Um, actually, I realized the notion of investability needs to be expanded. Mm. And I'll explain why it's important for that concept to be expanded. Okay. Uh, so the definition of invest, right, in the Oxford Dictionary, as I have Googled, <laughs> is um, you put money into financial schemes, shares, property, or a commercial venture with the expectation of achieving a profit. Mm. Okay. So if we actually break it down, uh, when someone invests, actually, firstly, there is choices. Mm. Uh, the person doesn't need to invest in the startup. He can put his money in the bank right. or instruments with a similar return. Mm. Okay? So meaning that actually the founder has got competition. Yes. Okay? Mm. Secondly... Uh, and, and the competition in this case is not another founder, not necessarily another founder. It could be any other things. That, yep, exactly, yeah, right. exactly. So the second thing is that there is a desire for future returns. Right. Therefore, it is very important that the founder considers mm. what type of future returns uh, is expected of the person that he is trying to pitch to. Mm. Right. So, um, firstly, recognizing that there's competition. Secondly, recognizing that uh, he needs to articulate the returns. Mm. So, the third thing in that definition is, is it only money? that we are thinking of when we want to do investment. What about time? Mm. What about effort? What mm. about reputation? Right. What about career path? Mm. Okay. So based on this definition of invest, right, then actually founders should think about um, investability from the angle of, firstly, is it a wise choice for themselves to invest their own time, money and effort into the startup right. because that's also a form of investment. Mm. He could be an employee, mm. uh, he could be doing something else with high returns, but why this? Right. So he actually needs to justify it to himself. Mm. Um, secondly, you can't do it alone as an entrepreneur. Uh, mm. And therefore, you need to get other people to join you as people who are your your founding team or advisors. Right. And these people are investing their career, mm. they are investing their time, their reputation in your company. Mm. But why should they do that? Because right. there are other options as well and it must be there must be something in it for them. Uh, but what is that? And um, of course Thirdly, would be potentially your customers, your business partners who are going to come with you. Especially those people who are close enough to your business who want to then invest um, 
with you either in terms of an exchange of you know uh, services and stuff like that mm. would they want to invest in if you if you are a bit shaky right um, versus you know investing with somebody else and of mm. course finally it will be investors mm. so I think um, it's actually good to think about investability more broadly right. so that you think about it at a very early stage versus right at the like a, a, a later stage whereby you need money then you think about it and at that time it may be a little bit late already mm. to start thinking about all these things yeah. so that's why I think it's important to actually broaden the perspective of what investability means yeah I think that's a very insightful uh, perspective because uh you know, as I said, you know, when we, just, when we first started talking, you know, one thing that struck us was, okay, it's all about, you know, founders wanting funds. And especially when we, when we talked about this, you know, it was actually at the beginning of that, uh, of that looming uh, uh, investment winter that was coming, right? Mm. You know, people losing their jobs and so on. But uh, the way you describe investability, the fact that it, it is much broader, um, than just asking for people's money, right? Not and not only investors' money, but also your potential partners, your customers, maybe even family, friends, and so on, right? And uh, it's not just about money, but rather what they are really investing in, including uh, credibility and, uh, and credentials, is actually very, very important. So, in your experience, I mean, when you are uh, in your business because as part of your work is to help these founders to work through that isn't mm. it what has uh what typically transpires uh in their in their minds or what kind of um after they have this uh you know mind shift right you know to have a much broader perspective on investability beyond just uh, asking for money and funding Mm, the mind shift will get them to um, think about firstly the viability of their business in a more holistic mm. manner um, okay so when when we think about w when they have a mindset shift to say I'm not just after the money uh, they will think about actually how can I uh, position my business mm. to be more attractive to these other people right. so that they will come on board with me. Mm. So um, this actually ties back to the sales in Asia theme right. whereby they then need to kind of put on a little bit of their sales hat right. and try to uh, you know, sell their business uh, to other people other than investors mm. yeah. so that's kind of the mindset shift that happens when their notion of investability actually broadens okay and so in, in your experience you know working with uh, this in the startups you know is that uh, is the skill or understanding that as founders they should be out there selling as well is that something that's usually that you see uh, um, as a skill that they typically have or is that something that uh, many of them struggle with? Uh, <laughs> okay, I think that's a um, difficult question to <laughs> answer straight. <laughs> okay, I, I think yes, it would be different, of, yes. Yeah. I, I think mm. 
some founders are definitely they, they will think of themselves as good salespeople. Mm. But what is preventing them from uh, selling well? It, it, this is like quite a kind of like a paradox, right? Right. They are maybe good salespeople, but what is preventing them from selling well? I think is the overconfidence bias and um, maybe confirmation bias mm. because founders are always very passionate about their ideas, right? Right, and the I think the fundamental of sales is really to come from the perspective of the person that you are trying to sell to. Mm. So if they are trying to sell to you, but they're not really coming from your perspective as to why would you want to invest your time, energy, etc., on the startup. Mm. Thinking about it from that pers- that person's perspective, but mm. instead, you know, just projecting oh how great the, the 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 startup is, I think that's where the disconnect typically happens. Mm. Yeah. So how do you help them when it comes to when when they in your in your line of work? Because uh, you you help them to really think about investability in a much broader sense. You know, so to what degree do you uh, provide guidance yeah. and assistance in this area? Okay, so uh, when startups ask us, mm. so how do we demonstrate investability to mm. investors? So whether is it to investors, to your business partners, or to talent that you want to invite, we use exactly the same framework. And the mm. framework, uh, I call it the TGRR framework. Okay. okay, so investors, different types of investors will typically look for four things. So the first is traction. Right. Okay. So traction is evidence of two things. Evidence of what the founder has done to show that actually he's of good caliber, demonstrating resilience, demonstrating grit, demonstrating commercial savviness. Mm. So it's about demonstration of founder capability. Mm. But actually the other is around the viability of the business itself. Right. Right. So um, how many customers have you signed on? Mm. Uh, maybe what's the retention rate? Uh, what is your engagement rate? What is your attrition rate? Mm. So some of these um, numbers and evidence will actually show people who are thinking of joining you, whether giving you money, time or whatever, mm. whether um, how much of a risk are you? Mm. Because they, they need to understand that actually startups is really a very risky endeavor. Right. So, in order to allay people's uh, concerns about mm. your viability, you need to provide these evidence. So, so I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll go, you know, we'll explore the rest of the TLGG, but just on traction alone, you know, there are startups, founders who would come up with an idea without any, uh, you know, real traction of having sold anything yet because it's just a, vis- a vision of what the product would be, you know. So, how do they overcome that? You know, how do they um, how do they then convince you know or, or demonstrate traction when like it's a new product but you know we we you know it's like it's an idea and there's but there's data to show that there's a good potential there I mean how, how do they how can they still be uh, uh, investable you know even without that proven data yet actually that's a good question mm. so it really depends who they are trying to pitch to Right. So, assuming that they are trying to convince the government to give them a grant, mm. then uh, the answer is maybe that's enough. So, evidence that you have actually thought through the your business model, that mm. you have some clarity, 
uh, is then demonstration of your action. So um, somebody told me that traction equals to action. Right. So what is the action that you have taken? Hmm. But if you are going to um, angel investors, private equity investors, um, to ask for some form of money or even service investors. So service investors are people that don't give you money, but they give you their time in exchange for maybe equity or part payment or so. Mm. If you go to these people and you say, oh, I've done, I've done nothing, but it's just an idea. Right. Uh, it is actually <laughs> quite low likelihood that people are going to feel that you are low risk. They're of like, they're, you're not even doing anything, then why should I be putting my money in? Of course, unless they have the data to back it up, you say at least in terms of, let's say, market potential or even evidence from, uh, let's say, what others uh, might have already done before. For example, you know, maybe market research, I suppose. Right. Mm-hmm. But so what you're, what you're referring to is, uh, is basically, you know, people, founders who are really out there asking now for either angel or seed funding, right? For at this stage, mm. so I think in summary is around um, the strength of the evidence right. and how that then relates to the party that you are pitching to, which is again is from a sales angle, right? Okay. So um, if mm. you are asking people to put in um, serious money, mm. then you need to provide serious evidence. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. yeah, that's good. So what what is what are the other components of this uh, TLGG uh, uh, framework then? Okay. So T stands for attraction. Right. Uh, the second stands G stands for growth. Oh, sorry. It's TGRR. Uh, TGRR. Ah, uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Dyslexic. Uh, that's me. <laughs> so <laughs> TGIF. TGRR. Right. That's a good one. Yeah. Yes. So uh, G mm. stands for growth vision. Okay. So um, a lot of startup founders, it's very easy for them to paint a growth story. So like year mm. one, I want to be local. Year two, I want to expand to Southeast Asia, etc., etc. Right. Okay. So this is kind of like that growth vision. Mm. Um, but it's actually very easy to paint a picture, uh, but it's not so easy talking through the numbers. Mm. Okay. So. Uh, at when we advise uh, founders who have already kind of understood the product market fit, okay, so before product market fit, you are just kind of exploring, right? What is right. a sweet spot? So at that time, it's really very premature to talk about growth vision because mm. then like everything is made up, right? Mm. But when you kind of have a little bit of traction, you kind of know where your sweet spot is, then to demonstrate to people who want to invest their time, energy, money with you, you need to explain to them the growth vision, which is your pathway to achieve the returns for them. Right. Yeah. So year one, where I will be, year two, where I'll be mm. up to year five or whatever. Mm. But um, talk is cheap. So yeah, backing it up. Yeah, because maybe yeah, that's right. I was just thinking of that. So just so how so how do you, how do they back it up then? Yeah. So right. thinking through the commercial aspect is then important, because uh, the pro- cash flow projection or your financial projection is a manifestation of your implementation strategy, right? So how much are you charging in like this location versus another location? What is your go to market strategy mm-hmm. in? the various geography, then will all manifest in your cost as well as the corresponding revenue. Mm. So if you tell me that you are very ambitious, 10x, 20x, year-on-year growth every year, Mm. but your marketing spend is like very low. Mm. So I would say, oh, how then are you propelling Mm. your growth? 
So the story, the what and why has to be then kind of like um, corroborated with the numbers, which is the how and when. Okay. So this is what we mean by um, the growth. And actually, when we talk about um, numbers, right? Actually, we know that as early stage, the numbers will change. Nice. Um, mm. It's actually the thinking, surfacing all your assumptions and mm. logic when you communicate with people. Then they'll say, ah, okay, this founder has thought through. So people giving you money, they say, oh, okay, you have thought through and I can kind of like have a good conversation with you about your assumptions. Right. People that you're trying to bring on the team, they know that hey, my career is going to go somewhere. This right. is exciting. Mm. There's exciting stuff on the horizon. So this is, uh, so therefore painting a reasonable, viable, um, grounded growth story is important. Okay. Okay. And so you help your clients or these startup founders to actually look at uh, the growth story as well or to formulate the growth story mm. or, and then you test it with them. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's cool. Right. So what about the other component then? Yeah. So the third component is risk. Risk. Okay. Yeah. Right. There's always risk. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, hmm. you know, uh, because as I said just now, founders always suffer from overconfidence bias or right. confirmation bias. And actually me included. Yeah. Because like my product is the best in the world. Right. How you can it not be so, right? <laughs> it's like the best thing is sliced bread, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it's my idea, therefore it has to be good. Correct, okay. correct. But mm. um, I mean, being an entrepreneur yourself, you mm. know that when the rubber hits the road, the idea will evolve because correct. the market That's will true. be your boss and mm. tell you whether what needs to what needs to change mm. um, sometimes it's within your control and but a lot of times it's not within your control right mm. so your growth story your implementation um, actually mm. needs to take into consideration the possibilities mm. the risk um, maybe your adoption your customer mm. adoption you expect to be 10 20 percent when you hit the ground running in a new geography mm. but maybe the way that people look at your product is not ex not what you expect mm. and adoption may be no 50% less right. whatever so how does that work when that happens so mm. you need to demonstrate to investors business partner whoever how are you thinking about mitigating these risks mm. for example um, as an example maybe you don't set up operations immediately right. in that new country but instead, you work through maybe distributors mm. or rep office or something. That's right. Yeah. Mm. So so then you can you know mitigate the potential cost mm. um, or the expenditure there. Okay. Okay. And the last component. Last component is returns. Returns. So okay. this goes back to <laughs> our definition just now about invest, right? Mm. People expect uh, a return for them. But in a lot of pictures that we see, right, actually uh, the articulation is, okay, this is the amount of money that I need from you. Mm -hmm. Please invest in me. Right. There is no um, kind of communication to say, what will you get mm. and why I'm a better bet than other people. But usually, so so in, instead, what do you typically what do they what do you typically see 
in in what they do to justify returns? Is it just more a lot? Do they spend a lot of time on the growth story? You know, say the paint the nice vision or what? So what what in your experience? What have you seen them doing instead of uh, what they're supposed to do? Like you said, I haven't mm. seen um, startups explicitly mm. telling um, their their cash investors what returns they will get. But uh, for us in the BizLab, we actually have a way to calculate the potential returns so that it gives the startup some kind of um, understanding of where do they stand. Can you you share a sample of that, you know, without giving away too much uh, trade secrets? I mean, uh, how do you help them to uh, come up with those? Okay, so we have a proprietary tool um, that you will enter your five-year cash flow projection Mm. and then we use certain ratios Mm. to calculate what um, that value is at the end of um, the potential return at the end of five years. So assuming certain um, investment that's being made, certain equity that is being given Mm. to the investor, Mm. what that potential return is going to be. Okay. Um, so it's quite interesting when we show this number to the startup founders because it's like a mirror to them right. to say, mm. oh, actually my business is... Um, okay, so typically we, we see two scenarios, very interesting. One scenario is that uh, the number is something like 50x or 60x. It's mm. very, very, very rosy picture. Mm. But a lot of times when we look at the input variables, right, Actually, these people have projected themselves to be profitable from day one. Wow, okay. And then we will be asking them, actually, then why are you raising funds? Mm. Because you don't seem to need funds. Mm. So then we will ask them to go back and re-look at the, uh, you know, the assumptions behind their projections. Right. Um, there are others where they realize, actually, their returns is very low um, it's good for a lifestyle business mm. but it is not going to attract investors to invest in them okay. Okay. so uh, investors meaning the the VCs of the world right. it's unlikely that that will happen so when they see that actually their um, returns for the investor is actually quite low mm. like maybe um, 2x or even kind of 1.5x or even 3x right um, we get them to think about seeking alternative sources of investment other than from the VCs. Mm. So it can be from people who are maybe strategic partners with them who would benefit from you know, uh, a partnership, maybe some kind of investment, but definitely not the VCs who are looking for very high growth um, or high returns. Mm. Yeah. So um, understanding your returns is important for you to also understand who you are trying to market yourself to. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, because, uh, you know, especially looking at uh, what's been happening uh, in the markets uh, where, where investors are now more focused on getting to profitability faster rather than uh, growing at all costs, right? You know, uh, how how has that shifted uh, the way 
founders should look at investability from that angle when we're, when we're talking about things like uh, returns, right? Because I mean, when we talk about returns, you know, there's people like to make a lot of promises. <laughs> so, but uh, has, has that uh, changed the way founders are thinking about how they would approach uh, investability? You know, I mean, especially with the recent, uh, you know, things that are going on in the last couple of years, you know, last year or so at least, yeah. Yeah, so what you said just now is um, very accurate in terms of the investor sentiments that mm. people, uh, they want to know that the business model is profitable mm. um, before they want to make the investment mm. um, versus they just see that the idea is viable and then they... Uh, invest to allow the the founders to pursue a growth at all cost strategy. Mm. Uh, so what we um, advise our founder is that they need to have clarity on the nature of their business model um, before they decide whether what kind of strategy it's suitable for them. Mm. Um, so if you think about the the cash flow trajectory shape right mm. uh, you actually have two options to pursue one is that you need to demonstrate a profitable business model first and once you have demonstrated which is under traction mm. then you are in a good position to show to investors that hey actually i am a good candidate for uh you know more investment mm. because i have demonstrated um the, the business model works mm. and I'm capable of um, running a, a profitable, uh, I mean, bringing it to profitability. Right. So this is, um, this is one thing that we, and this is, a, this is a less risky approach for the founders as well. Mm. Um, but there are some other founders, for whatever reason, they decide to pursue a growth at all costs. So what they do is that they pump in a lot of money um, whether their own or from um, the immediate investors mm. uh, and they want to gain a lot of market share mm. so um, it, maybe they gain it through marketing dollars so it's trying to grow at all costs right. and in the hope that when they present this evidence of traction to investors investors will say ah, okay so there's good market share already and mm. therefore I'll invest in you mm. so this is the second uh, possibility but we will communicate to our startup founders that Actually, this option, no right or wrong, but it is risky, mm. right? Because you don't know uh, whether will investors come in before you run out of cash? Will investors um, be attracted to whatever you have achieved right. and, in, and invest in you? So there's no... Um, I, I, I know the general sentiment is investors want to see evidence of profitability first in general that's the general sentiment um, but there are still founders that is um, that wants to take a more risky route mm. um, but we will explain that that's the that's the implication to them right yeah okay. Okay. because I think a lot of times um, it's about knowing that you have alternatives mm. um, that actually there is an option for you to pursue an alternative business model, for example, mm. and take a slower route, mm. but because there's profitability, it's less risky for you. 
right. versus another route where actually there's more aggressive growth mm. um, but due to whatever reason you cannot get the funding then uh, that's a, a lot more risky outcome mm. so I think in today's climate what have you seen uh, particularly founders doing now so when you know that look investments is going to be very hard to come by right and uh, if I'm not going to get if I'm not going to get more money I need to be able to show some of these evidence you know like you said you know, you know the traction and growth and so on and so forth so so what are they what have you seen at least in the last uh, few months um, the change in terms of behavior or strategy or approach right of founders these days or, or do they just say okay let's park aside my that uh, that thought of getting more money let's focus on just getting more revenue for example or maybe cutting costs and things like that actually i i think what i'm what i'm going to share is not um, restricted to observation in the last few couple of months Mm. Um, i think it's been there uh, it's a phenomenon that's been there so so the phenomenon Mm. i'm going to describe is you know founders even with uh, traction with uh, you know some customers actually they will reach a point in time where they need to they need more money mm. um, but the typical angel investors the VCs will still say you're too early mm. so what happens to that valley of death okay. what happens valley in there yeah okay. you, you need the money you need your team um, you need fuel to go on mm. um, but you're too early to for for the institutional investors uh, so I also grapple with this for a long time mm. in terms of how can founders be supported. So actually, um, we will be establishing a partnership with an Australian-based platform called Pitch Portal. Okay. So this Pitch Portal is very interesting because it actually has got um, a lot of investors who will provide money, but also, interestingly, um, what we call service investors. So these are very um, these are very competent uh, people with different skills, mm. and they are very familiar with working with startups. Um, and the remuneration doesn't necessarily need to be in cash. It can be equity, mm. partial equity, partial payment, and stuff like that. Mm. So it allows um, the startups to actually tide through mm. this valley of death period. Mm. Because if we take a step back, right, what are startups going to do with the money that they get? They are going to hire people. Mm. They are going to hire people to do something so that they can continue the journey. Mm. So instead of, you know, investors handing you the money and then you take the money and go and find a team, um, this platform allows you to get help um, without that full cash outlay up front. Okay, well, that's interesting. So, so as far as uh, founders can, are concerned, whether or not you're growing or you're kind of like stuck, stuck in a rut right now. And today, I mean, we just uh, saw in the papers that at least in Singapore, you know, we're not, the outlook isn't all that great, <laughs> right? That's, you know, despite the fact that, uh, you know, rental has been going up the roof, it's going to be cooling down in the next few months, but also business sentiments isn't all that great. So, so what you're saying is that, uh, you know, in order to, there are now other platforms like the one that you talk about that will kind of like help 
founders and companies to continue to get access not only to funds but also to expertise yeah. right that instead of paying for expertise which especially when they're running out of cash you know to to kind of trade that at uh, um, get expertise in return for maybe you know equity and so on okay. yeah so those those would be these are just come some of those things that are that are, that are coming up uh, that will help them to tie them you know kind of like tie them across yeah I think the other um, Mm. idea is just to be more pragmatic Mm. Um, so we talk to a lot of early stage founders who are very adamant that they need to continue development along a specific trajectory like this is my implementation path I need the money to build this without the money I cannot build this platform or system Mm. or whatever um but after we talk to them, we say, hey, actually, if you don't get funding, right, actually, this means that your entire operations will stall. You are mm. not able to progress. Is there any alternative revenue source that you can generate right. in the meantime? Mm. And some of these people will tell us, mm, yeah, maybe we can do some training mm. um, that we don't need the system, but it's still leveraging on our core competency. Mm. Uh, so when we make them think about actually how else can you survive right mm. uh, typically there will be some possible revenue streams mm. that will come out mm. yeah so um, the second way is to be pragmatic mm. uh, in thinking about where you get your money from yeah so I think that's an interesting uh, you know uh, thing because because even I'm also seeing that uh, a lot of for tech companies, first of all, they start out to be a very product-led company. You know, that's their that's their design, right? So they start up, you know, they come up with a new like piece of technology or service, but then it's very very much product-led. Okay, but what we're also seeing, even for my business, is that uh, you know there is a lot of avenue for them to introduce services rather than to be uh, mm. so adamant about product-led because I think it, cost of development will continue to you know to escalate no matter what because you know even though we have they have a lot of layoffs but it is still costly to build a product it is still costly to keep changing and maintaining it right but uh, there is a potentially a very rich uh, resource that is very untapped which is their core competencies mm. you know, that can be delivered as a service Right. Mm. So, so that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, it's, so I thought it was only me who's just seeing that, but it's also it looks like it looks like also seeing that in your uh, you know in the people that you're advising. Right? Yeah, it's about survival, la, Essentially, yeah. yeah. So, what else can you sell? Right. <laughs> essentially, is that is that question <laughs> right to tie you tie you through? Yeah, it's like those those you know like in retail like a warehouse sale. Okay, let's clear all the stock. You know, let's uh, let's clear all the inventory instead of uh, sitting on them and uh, not making us any, and costing us. Uh, uh, you know warehouse storage okay yeah, that's very cool right I, this this has been very very um, enlightening uh, and uh, and and I think the work that you're doing for for founders and helping them to kind of get their head across uh, you know I like the fact that uh, when you're looking at uh, you know as a founder you shouldn't be looking at just funding but you should be looking at investability and that can come in so many aspects right you know i like that uh, uh that tgr you know i mean the, the fact that you're talking about first of all you know it's uh, it's about traction traction doesn't mean that it's about how much money you have really made or how many customers but also your own reputation as traction so i think that just goes back to what i was talking about in that 
that uh, within funders, founders, there is uh, an untapped uh, well that they could really leverage on, you know, from their expertise that they could bring, you know, uh, to the table, mm. rather than just being very focused on just building a product. I mean, I've lived through that, and and I, and I know. So after a while, when I built my product, you know, I decided, you know what, I cannot be product led. You know, there's a lot of things that I can offer, so I continue to offer my coaching, my training, my services, mm. and mm. Uh, and and my tool that I build. It's just a compliment to make my services better, so I kind of like put away the idea of being product led for for now because that's not meeting uh, my customers' needs, right? Mm. So that's 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 very cool, right? Uh, so what advice would you have for founders today? You know, like for example, those who are already, the founders that you're you're working with who continue to enjoy success. And also for those who are kind of like in the rut right now, struggling, what advice would you have, uh, you know, to 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 keep your head above the water today? Mm, I think a lot of um, founders at some point in time at the early stage. Uh, so mm. I'm I'm more familiar with the people that's in the early stage. Mm. Um, that valley of death that I mentioned to you right. where you have kind of um, done a lot kind of exhausted and uh, you actually need to do more uh, it's really giving yourself permission to rest mm. uh, I would like to say you know just um, you know just grit uh, just you know be like commando style and power <laughs> forward I would like to say that but actually is um, it, it doesn't work mm. uh, so. you you need to give yourself the p- p- permission mm. to preserve your mental wellness mm. um, okay yeah because you only have yourself and if you have a team if, if you have a team right that's even more important that you keep yourself well mm. so that you can continue bringing along other people in the journey mm. so so mental um, wellness, your own physical well-being uh, is is superbly important. Mm. Uh. Okay, well, I think that's good advice because I think uh, you know we continue to see uh, layoffs. You know, we continue to see uh, founders struggling. You know, we, you know, I I track. Uh, you know, there's a website. I forget what it's called now, but I basically track. You know tech layoffs you know, on a daily basis and uh, you know now companies like Lyft in the US and you know a few others you know their numbers are dropping all the time and of course you know that is apart from the big ones you know, like your Facebooks and your Salesforce mm-hmm. and so on right uh, yeah and ultimately it's, it's uh, as a founder it does take a toll on you right not only on you but also the people that are investing in you like your family <laughs> right, not only in terms of mo- not in terms of money, but uh, your your spouses and your loved ones who are trying to support you, you know, emotionally as well. So I think it's very very good advice. Yeah, yeah which okay. goes back to why you need to consider hmm. investability right. <laughs> of your business because you are putting hmm. in time and effort. Hmm. So uh, you need to understand the why as well. Okay, um, but not get so caught up that it consumes you. 
Okay. This has been a very, very great conversation, uh, Dr. Young, and uh, I think you. that I've learned uh, so much, you know. So I now will now look at, uh, you know, even as a founder myself, or anything that we do, that we, it's even any services that we offer, it's about looking broadly at investability mm. rather than just trying to get your, your you know sell you a service you know in return for money right <laughs> so <laughs> that's great so uh you know because uh, you've and clearly your experience uh in consulting and change management and uh in academia has, has clearly helped because you i think even before you started this uh, biz lab uh, you that's where we met you have been advising uh other people on uh, you know on, on driving change in the organizations mm. right and so to kind of wrap this up you know i like our audience to get to know you a little bit more on the personal side with just some uh, quick rapid fire questions if you don't mind me asking <laughs> right so just kind of like answer the first thing that comes to your mind right so uh, okay but be- but before that just just sort of check you know so these founders that you advise they're mostly based here in singapore right because i mean you you know or are they do you advise uh, or work with founders outside of outside singapore, of singapore right? as well okay yeah. right in what countries for example uh yeah. philippines mm. hong kong mm. malaysia mm. um uh let me see France, wow, New okay. Zealand, okay. yeah. Okay. So we, it, it's not restricted to Singapore. Okay. And do they all? And and looks like they all have very unique. Uh, is it safe to assume that they all have very unique challenges? Uh, you know, in their, uh, in their business and also in the geography that they operate in, right? Uh, yes, mm. they have unique challenges. So mm. some of them are actually, um, they are not hyper growth business mm-hmm. they are just looking to be uh, profitable mm. whereas some they aspire to be hyper growth mm. business um, some is that they are actually slow growth business but aspire to be hyper growth business okay. so we get a we get a mixture of of all these uh, okay. all these different startups oh very cool right mm. so you so you, you so you you get a good exposure to what uh, startups in Asia and beyond looks like because now we have them uh, in France as well, right? Okay, so let's wrap this up with uh, just some uh, quick questions uh, to kind of get to know you a little bit better. Okay, so uh, okay, describe Asia in one word. Exciting. Exciting. Okay, that's a good one. Okay, uh, you've lived in Singapore all your life, but uh, what would be your favorite country to live? Taiwan. <laughs> Taiwan. Okay. <laughs> oh, why Taiwan? Uh, I think it's very chill. Okay. Yeah, I always um think that Taiwan is like a home away from home for me. Okay, so you uh, must visit there quite a bit then. Yeah, okay. it's very okay. chill, and I I I speak the language, so it uh connects with me. Okay. Very much. <laughs> oh no no no. <laughs> I wouldn't oh. be able to do that. Okay, Mandarin. Mandarin. Yeah. Okay, all right. Okay, I thought when we think Taiwan, I'm also thinking Hokkien. That's where all the Hokkien songs come up from, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, a favorite country to work in Asia. You know, what is your favorite country to work? I haven't worked in so many countries. The only country I've worked long term outside of Singapore is Brunei. Okay. Yeah, so I worked there for a year mm. when I was on project, and I really enjoyed that because it's very chill. Um, mm. 
we were working as a big team mm. there so we had a lot of like uh recreation during our off days and the team spirit was very good mm. yeah so um I, i like the country as well so mm. there's a lot of nature there's not so much of shopping stuff when i was working there right. so we spent a lot of time like exploring the nature um doing like playing sports yeah so i i had very good memories of that country okay yeah. okay and the favorite country to vacation in asia uh okay other than taiwan i i like korea <laughs> Korea. <laughs> well, you know, when you there next time, let me know. I'll you know introduce my daughter to you. Okay. <laughs> right. And favorite food. Durian. Durian. All right. <laughs> okay. Well. Okay. That one. That's right. You know, that's one of my favorite as well. So you know, you although you've uh, worked in Brunei and you've lived uh, mostly here, but uh, you work with a lot of uh, customers who are outside of Singapore, within Asia as well, right? Uh, in a boat, I'm sure in SMU as well, right? So one taboo in Asia that you know of that you would never ever break, right? Taboo in Asia. Yeah, an Asian taboo that you will never break. Um, okay, I'm not exactly sure what, what whether what uh, what I'm going to say is a taboo, but I think it's um, the fact that we show a lot of respect to the people that we do business with, rather mm. than be very direct and in the face. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good okay thank you very much uh, dr young it's been uh, very very uh, insightful learning from you and i will take the tgrr you know think about that all the time in my business you know i i like the 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 square to circle to triangle a uh, part of your journey and uh, you know that's your version of your ikigai but uh, how you evolved there mm-hmm. and uh, yeah and investability right? that's a word that I can get used to hey, thank you Benny <laughs> it's been a really a great privilege to have this conversation with you no it is the privilege is mine you know, so and uh, thank you for being on this show okay. right and I hope that uh, we can uh, you know uh, meet again and talk about other things in the future yeah for right. sure okay okay thank you thank you you've been listening to sales in asia and that wraps up our chat with dr yong shin ning the founder of bizland we hope you've enjoyed this podcast so do share it with your friends associates and colleagues feel free to drop me a line or follow me on linkedin to offer suggestions for this show Till the next time, this has been Benny Tan of Sales in Asia.